John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 to 42, but I want to start by just reading a few verses. So if you are in John 4, follow me as I read to you certain verses. So see if you can keep up, okay? John chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Drop down to verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Drop down to verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, that when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And lastly, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Does Christmas make anyone here hungry? Like a lovely roast dinner, warm, fresh mince pies with cream, more cream than mince pie usually, There's, and then chocolate, so much chocolate that you have to think of creative ways to use the chocolate, or maybe even to re-gift the chocolate, because there's so much chocolate at Christmas. But there's no doubt that Christmas is connected with eating, and it's also connected with Hunger, often during this time of year, we think about those who don't have what most of us enjoy. And it's funny because when it comes to being hungry at Christmas, it does make us think about what would Jesus be hungry for? What is Jesus hungry for? And as we just read in this section in John chapter 4, what we see is Jesus is hungry to reach the lost. He's hungry to do the will of his Father. We've been talking about now for several weeks leading up to December, talking about how we really wanted to set apart December as a month for outreach. And as soon as we talk about things like this, outreach, evangelism, it's kind of like when we talk about prayer, everyone feels a bit like, oh, I don't do this well enough, or I don't do it enough, or I don't think of it enough, and we're all kind of preparing for a big guilt inducement. But that's not what we're meant to see today. I really pray that what we see today is the glory of Christ in this, that we see in his heart, the heart the Father wants to develop in us, that we see in his heart a longing to see people know him in truth. In fact, what we're going to do is, as we look at these verses, we're going to basically glean four things that we learn about outreach. That is, reaching out for the lost. Jesus said about himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's hungry for. And it's in just following him, enjoying him, giving thanks to him, walking with him, that we'll develop the same heart. So let's look at these four things quickly. The first one is this. Relational intentionality 
is necessary for outreach. Look at verse 1. John tells us, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So what's happening here is that Jesus knows the Pharisees see how much his ministry, Jesus' ministry is increasing in popularity. John the Baptist's ministry increased in popularity, and John didn't have a problem telling off the Pharisees, calling them on their hypocrisy. And so when they see Jesus' ministry increasing, they're getting a bit nervous. And Jesus knows there's a confrontation coming. And it's important to recognize here, Jesus is not afraid of the conflict. It's also important to recognize Jesus was not uncaring towards the Pharisees. Yes, he told the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, off. But he wasn't uncaring. He actually ate with them. He actually wanted them to know him in truth as well. But the reality is, Jesus moved away from the Pharisees, from, from the conflict that was there, because these were people that were resisting him. And this is important to recognize. Sometimes we can look at everyone out there, I don't know if you've ever done this. It's actually a good exercise to do. If you're ever in the city center, especially at Christmas, I want you to look around and I want you to think about this statistically. Don't judge individuals, but think about this statistically. When you're in the city center, 97% of those people probably don't darken the door of a church, let alone know the Lord in truth. And we, we see people, and sometimes we, we, when we do think about that, we're, we're moved and we're maybe even a bit overwhelmed, like, I, I can't do this. Lord, I don't know who to go to. And so what we start doing is trying to go to everybody. Now, we should be willing to go to anybody. And some of you guys here, I know, do some great street work, and we say, keep going. But we should be thinking about, well, who actually is willing to hear? Who's willing to engage? Who actually wants some kind of a relationship? There is a time for us, listen, right off the bat that we need to recognize that Jesus actually moved away from people who resisted him. We're not being unloving to back off if people don't want to hear. It's okay. Take the guilt off your back. I should have tried harder. I should have done more. Maybe you should have. Maybe you shouldn't have. Maybe it was right for you just to back off and give space. The point is, Jesus knew when to back off and he knew when to move forward. And we read in verse 4, it says specifically, and he had to pass through Samaria. In other words, it could could be translated, it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Now, the the truth is, from where he was in Judea to go to Galilee, the straightest shot was through Samaria. But most pious Jews would kind of go around, they kind of cross the River Jordan, go into the, this place called Perea, and they go up to where, uh, where Galilee was. They didn't want to go through Samaria because they had such a low view of Samaritans. But Apostle Jesus had to go, and I think this is much bigger than just the fact that, that, that Jesus wanted to find the fastest route. No, Jesus was planning more than just efficient travel. He was thinking about the Samaritans needed to know him too. See, Jesus planned to be around those who needed him. And this is one of the things that is good for us to think about. Yes, there's times to walk away. Distance from people who, who want to resist the fact that you're a Jesus follower, resist the Jesus in you. But there's, it doesn't mean that we should resist all people who aren't yet Christians. We, in fact, we should be planning, being intentional about being around people 
who don't yet know the Lord. Jesus was intentional about this. And so how does he do it? How does he bridge the gap? So we pick it up in verse 5. It says, Now he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting besides the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about 12 noon, midday. Now, there's lots of uh, interesting things about this area where Jacob's well was, even some things that might be a bit, uh, would be really telling, but we don't have time to get into those things, okay? But just know this is a place in Samaria where there's a lot of history that that really kind of speaks into why the Samaritans, who were sort of Jewish uh, people who then married locals and kind of had this kind of hybrid faith, this strange mix of of Judaism and their own faith. They had their own temple or place of worship and, and so on. And because they were like that, the Jews despised them. But, but there are certain things about this place that where they and the Jews would have had something in common, which is probably why John's talking about it. But, but there, he, Jesus meets in this place, and it says very specifically that Jesus was wearied. In other words, John, and remember, John's gospel emphasizes the deity of Christ more than any other gospel. John's gospel talks about the fact that Jesus is the son of God, that he's God and and taking on human flesh more than anything else. And yet, he also here emphasizes that he is indeed really human, that he had real fatigue. He, He had real thirst. And why this is important is because what we see happening here is Jesus is using his own needs to move towards others. Sometimes I think, and we do this at Christmas, we, we can unwittingly be very condescending in our outreach. I remember going up to a person that was obviously uh, sleeping rough. And she, was a, she, was a, she happened to be a female. She was a bit, I'd say, a little bit older than me. And, and she looked really tired, bless her. And I went up to her. I said, hi, how are you? She said, I'm Okay. I said, oh, I'm John. Well, I'm John. What's your name? Thinking, isn't that good of me that I'm sharing my name and wanting her to know the name? She goes, I don't know you. I, I don't want to tell you my name. Do you realize how vulnerable I am here? And I was like, oh, man, she's absolutely right. And I felt really bad. I said, I'm really sorry. That was presumptuous for me. She's like, that's fine. I'm, I mean, I'm fine. I said, okay. So went off and did, it was actually during a Christmas outreach. Went off and did a Christmas outreach. Came back, saw her again. I just, you know, I just want to apologize for earlier. I, I kind of came across condescending. Do you need anything? A cup of coffee, anything like that? She's like, no, I just got something, but thank you. She goes, I'm sorry that I snapped as well. It's just, it's hard to be here. I'm like, yeah, I, I wish I could help. She goes, that's okay. I, I have some, some inroads for help. I'll be okay, but thank you. You know, it's funny because the, 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 the thing is, I thought, oh, I'm going to reach her because she's the needy one. But you know what? Often God wants to use our own neediness. In fact, I think it was probably a better witness that I could go to her and say, I messed up, sorry, forgive me, than it was, hey, here I am on my white steed with a cup of coffee. <laughs> no, we, we need to be wise about this. And, and this is important because Jesus, as God, could have supernaturally met his own need, but he chose instead to use his general human need to connect with another human this is the thing. This, this is Christmas. And I absolutely, absolutely love Christmas. 
I love the family time. I definitely love the food. I love the presents. I, I, I love the celebration. I love the lights. I, I, we, set, we set up our tree on the 24th of November. I love Christmas. It, it, it's, it's a great thing. But you know what? The truth is, as much as Christmas is, is great for me, for a lot of people, Christmas is really hard. Really hard. People have lost family. People are in the midst of suffering. People that are in a trial that never seems to stop. That trial doesn't take a break for Christmas. They have real needs. But guess what? So do you. So instead of trying to drown your needs in mince pies or hide behind your fairly functional family, instead of doing that, let's consider being honest about our needs with needy people and see if that's the bridge that we need to cross with the gospel. The Bible says in the book of Colossians, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, it says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. When we talk about relational intentionality, we mean, listen, if we're going to do outreach, now I'm not saying that there's never going to be a chance where you share the gospel, you share the truth about who Jesus is with a stranger, or that you invite a stranger to the church, that's totally fine. It's, it's really, it's not a bad thing to do. One of the things that we are going to ask you guys to perfectly consider is we want to, to, to put out leaflets, our invitations for our Christmas services, all around here at City Academy and all around Hillcrest. These are just strangers, people that we don't really know. We want to invite strangers. They come on in. That's completely appropriate. But listen, usually what God wants to do is he wants to not just for us to kind of make a convert or throw a seed, but actually to build a relationship where we can disciple somebody. We're talking about people that aren't believers yet. And you know, I can say this too. Sometimes discipleship happens before conversion. Do you know that? Sometimes people begin to be discipled, and yet they're not converted. But because you, you walk with that person, they get to a place where they know, man, I, I don't think I really know Jesus. I need to really know this Jesus and not just be someone who reads the Bible or who prays occasionally. The point is this. There needs to be a relational intentionality if we're going to do proper outreach, if we're going to do it the way Jesus does. So that's one thing. Second thing. When we talk about the message of outreach, the message is God's gift. It's what God gives. It's God's gracious gift. Look at verse 7. So the woman from Samaria came near to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, this is really shocking the woman that he would speak to her. First of all, Jesus would have known, he would have known by the fact that this woman's coming at noontime to get water, when the women would always come in the early morning or in the evening when it was cool, and it was also a big social event. The fact that she's coming at noon means she's avoiding her community. And he would have known something's not right here, that she's avoiding her community. She must have had some serious reasons to stay away from other women. And the woman was probably understandably suspicious. Who's this bloke talking to me, trying to chat me up? What's going on here? 
And she, because she knew, first of all, a Jewish man would never talk to a Samaritan woman for a good reason. She had reason to be suspicious. But Jesus isn't really concerned about what she thinks of him in the sense of how, how people think of his sort of social interaction. He's not so concerned about that. What he's really concerned about is does she know who he actually is? In other words, listen, he's willing to ignore social convention to to be able to give this gift to her, offer this gift to her. And here's the thing we have to get through our heads. If you ever, ever want to be involved in evangelism, guess what? It's going to be socially awkward at some point, always. It's going to be socially awkward. Because people don't always, or normally don't sort of in a nice way, in a, in a, a non-combative way, and in a, an intentional way, go to you and say, I'd really like to talk to you about Nord City. I think it's the best football team. And I just, can we talk about why you need to be a Nord City fan? People don't do that. They might get into it, you know, in some kind of arguing form and tell you why they're so much better than Ipswich and all that kind of stuff. They might get into those kinds of debates, arguments, but not going to want to win you over through kindness and helpfulness and character to Nord City. That's not what people do. No matter how passionate they are about a thing, they don't normally do that. So when you start doing that with Jesus, it's a bit weird. It's awkward. And it's always going to be awkward. And if you're not willing to feel awkward sometimes, guess what you're going to do? You're going to never witness. It's always a little bit awkward. I have a couple advantages that maybe you guys don't have. One, with my slight accent, ever so slight accent, people always say, what are you doing here? And I say, well, I came here for work. Where'd you come from? California. Why would you move from California to Norwich? Now, where we live in California was not nearly as nice as Norwich, to be fair. But two, it's like I say, well, it might sound strange, but I really think God told me to come here. Now, at that point, they're either going to go, oh, okay. <laughs> or they're going to go, what do you mean? And there's a chance for me to talk about Jesus and what he's done for me and why we feel like he called us to come here to tell others about Jesus. The point is, it's always a risk of being socially awkward. Outside of social convention, Jesus ignores that because he wants to present God's gift. Listen, God's love for the lost must overcome our concern about what others think of us. Now, I'm not saying that anything goes, that you can be as obnoxious as you want because you don't need to care about what people think. No, that's just dumb. I remember meeting a bloke who was doing some street uh, work here in Norwich. I had been doing some street work in Norwich and I had passed out tracks and having conversations. I saw this other guy doing it. I thought, oh, okay. I heard him talk about Jesus. I don't know, he was talking about the real Jesus. I said, oh, that's good. So I go to encourage him. I'm like, hey, brother, I, I, I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm from such, such a church. He's like, he's like, but are you born again? I'm like, yeah, totally born again. It's really great what you're doing. Yes, but are you born again? Yeah, stop. Listen, pay attention. I am a Christian like you. I'm born again like you. Yes, but... I'm like, have a good day. <laughs> I thought, no one's going to listen to that guy. He seemed like a nutcase. I'm not talking about being obnoxious like that, but I am saying if you can't break out of your comfort zone, you're never going to share. Jesus had to do something that was awkward to reach this woman. But I want you to also notice, because the message is about 
God's gift. And look at how he, Jesus exalts this in verse 10. He says, Jesus, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. And by the way, this well was exceptionally deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself as did his sons and his livestock? Now, when she says this, you need to understand something. The phrase living water, it's a, it was a common everyday phrase that, that was used to describe like a flowing stream or a fresh spring well, okay? So if someone was saying, I'm looking for living water, they weren't asking a spiritual question. They were saying, our cistern's a bit polluted and it's not gonna be good until the winter rains. We need to find a spring or a, or a running stream where we can get fresh water, okay? So living water was a normal phrase. But also, anyone who would have known anything about the Old Testament, about the scriptures, would have known that that phrase, living water, almost always points to God, points to God's work among his people, points to God's promises among his people. It was always used as a metaphor about God's work among his people. And here's what's interesting. What's happening here is that even though this woman is using Jesus' language, she doesn't really get his point. When, she's, when Jesus says God's gift, he, he uses a word, it's only used a couple times in the New Testament, and it's a word that the gift, word for gift means a generous sort of, um, oh, what's the term? Basically just an extravagant gift. If you knew God's extravagant gift. In other words, he's saying, if you knew the measure of God's generosity, you would ask. If you knew how generous my father is, you would ask. And, and here's the thing, this, this is important because when we're sharing the message of Jesus, when we're talking about who he is and the fact that he died for the sins of all men, the fact that he's risen from the dead, the fact that he's ascended to heaven, that he's, he made us right with the Father through faith, the fact that he's coming again to make the whole world right, the fact that he's the only righteous judge of everyone, all these truths about Jesus, we have to do it in a way that also remembers that he's the measure of God's generosity. That God could have just judged us or God could have just said, I'll just forgive you and stay away from you. But God instead takes on flesh and comes to us. He says, I don't want you just to not be my enemy. I want you to be my family. And the Bible says in the book of Romans that, that if God did not withhold his own son from us but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. He's the measure of God's generosity. So when Jesus is saying this to her, she, he's going, man, you, you really don't get that, do you? You don't understand this metaphor. You're not seeing it. So he goes on to say to her in verse 13, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's being clear here, isn't he? It's like Jesus saying, no, it's talking metaphorically. Are you getting that? And what does she say, verse 15? The woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water. Now, she still didn't seem to get it. But it's important to think about this, okay? Jesus is clear that he's offering her something that's meant to have an eternal impact. 
that God's gift, listen, is an eternal gift. It's a gift that lasts forever. It's a gift that gives us something that cannot be taken away from us. See, in a, real, real, in a very real sense, Jesus is this eternal well of salvation. We cannot share Jesus as some kind of spiritual life hack. Come to Jesus and everything else will work out. Your business will be blessed. Come to Jesus, your marriage will get better. Come to Jesus, you'll know how to raise kids. Come to servants, you'll see we don't know how to raise kids. No, this, this is not the way it works. Jesus is not some kind of life hack. He's not like, get your best life now. He's, he does something for us. God provided him for us because he's our eternal well of salvation. Listen, Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. God speaking through Isaiah says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you were angry with me, and your anger was turned away, that you might comfort me. With joy, Isaiah says to them, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus is that eternal well of salvation. The point is this. The message that we're called to give is the message of God's gift, his gracious, undeserved, radically generous gift. This is what our message should look like and sound like. Now, the woman doesn't get it, but she doesn't get it for the same reason we struggle to get it. She doesn't get it because of what we should call, we're going to call misdirected worship. Look, look at verse 16. In verse 16, it says, then Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now, this is hard, I think. I, I, I think our modern sensibilities would struggle a little bit with this because it seems like Jesus is kind of calling her out. I mean, this is, it seems like it's a bit, bit harsh. But actually, what Jesus is doing is radically, radically gracious to her. He's not seeking to humiliate her. Don't forget who's in this conversation at this well, just Jesus and this woman. Okay, so he's having a private conversation with her. Now, in, in one sense, he probably sensed something wasn't right with this woman. And maybe in the way she spoke to him, he sensed uh, that maybe there could have been some sort of immorality or that she was a bit of, other wives thought she was a bit of a threat or something like that. It could have been something like that. But what's really true by the specificity that he uses in calling her out is that he supernaturally is exposing her sin. He has what we would call a word of knowledge where he knows something about her that wouldn't be naturally known. You couldn't just know it from figuring it out. Very specific. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is, is, is twofold. One is we, we want to recognize that in doing this, Jesus is supernaturally exposing her false worship. So there's probably something in this woman that felt like, okay, what I need most, I have to get from a man. And let me just say this, no woman feels that way unless she's gone through something pretty bad. So there's probably a good sense that she was mistreated, possibly abused. We don't know, Scripture doesn't say. There's no doubt in my mind, just because this woman is human, she's like us, that she is both 
a sinner and a sufferer. That she's been one of those who's been sinned against. I don't have any doubt about that. The reason I'm bringing this up is, one, we need to be sensitive to that. We're dealing with anybody. We need to remember that we're not just dealing with sinners but sufferers. But also, listen, that Jesus knows that her biggest need, though, is her sin. Her sin needs to be forgiven. This is not a lack of compassion. This is like, let's deal with the big thing, and then we'll deal with the other thing. It's kind of like if, you, if you're in a car accident, God forbid, and you go to the, the, the A&E, and they're, they're checking you out, they're doing triage, seeing what's going on, and they suspect you have eternal in, internal injuries, you're, you might, you're not going to go, but wait, I just had my nails done. Can you fix my nails? It's not that the, the nail might not be important, but what's going on inside is much more important. You get that thing sorted, then you'll be healthy enough to get the other stuff sorted. And so Jesus is doing triage with her. See, here's the, here's the issue. And this is why I say he's exposing her false worship. The essence of false worship is looking to something else that you can only get from God. That's probably exactly what this woman's doing. Whatever her motives, whatever junk she went through, she's saying, God, I, 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 what I need, I need to get from this source that's other than God. And we all do this. And we do this, and this is why we don't see how great God's gift is for us. See, here, here's the deal. We often think this kind of direct kind of calling out of sin is unloving. We think of things like this. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Great verse. Great truth. Love covers a multitude of sins. And definitely, guys, listen, if someone sins against you and you don't need to deal with it, you can just forgive it, just absorb it and forgive it. Love covers a multitude of sins. If someone feels like you feel like someone's got something against you, man, go serve them. Go do something for them. Repair that relationship. Do whatever it takes because love covers a multitude of sins. But listen to this. James says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and notice, we'll cover a multitude of sins. In other words, it's just as loving to do that triage and make people see where their false worship is. Again, listen, when it comes to us doing outreach, trying to bring the gospel to other people, we've got to help them recognize why they actually don't believe the gospel, what they're believing instead. And the best way to do that is just often just to ask them questions. You don't necessarily have to kind of look for the jug. You're like, okay, five husbands. Where's the five husbands thing? You know. But there does need to be a willingness for us to ask people or to find out for people from people what their hope is in, who they're actually worshiping instead of God. And that has to be exposed. See, here's the reality. True worship is the goal of outreach. And so if we want to lead people to true worship, we've got to expose false worship. Now you say, why, why do you say true worship, John? Why are you using this whole worship thing? Well, look at verse 20. I think it'll make sense. She says, uh, sir, in verse 19, I perceive you are a prophet. So let's change the subject. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. This is what she's doing, right? She's so impacted by what he says. She's so 
moved by what she says, she thinks, okay, I gotta try and justify my state with a religious debate. I gotta try to show that this that you, this guy who's talking to me at this well, this guy, Jesus, he's got no foot to stand on. It's just kind of crazy to think about that. That's what she's doing, but that's what she's doing. And so Jesus says to her in verse 21, listen, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem nor uh, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, what's Jesus doing here? He's given a succinct definition of true worship. He's making it really clear. Okay, she wants to debate. He's ready for that debate by giving a clear and succinct definition. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here, okay? When Jesus gives a definition for worship here, when he's confronting her about, when she wants to make the issue of, hey, where are we supposed to worship? Jesus says, no, no, no. It's about who we're supposed to worship. When it comes to worship, listen, it's who we worship that determines whether or not that worship is authentic. It's who we worship. That's Jesus' point. And he basically kind of summarizes this in three ways. In verse 22, he's basically saying to her, the God who you're meant to worship is the God who revealed himself to Israel exclusively. God is bigger than just the God of Israel, but he's the God of Israel first and foremost because this is how he's identified himself. He chose Abram when Abram and his wife Sarai were old and unable to have children. He chose them, saying to them, I'm going to from you make a mighty nation. The nation that is eventually identified as Israel was a nation that God himself birthed supernaturally. He did it. When we talk about God, we wanted to find God, and I hope you know, by the way, nowadays you've got to define God. Don't think that when people talk about God, they're thinking about the same God you're thinking about necessarily. But when it comes to defining who God is, we mean the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself to Israel, the God who gave his word to Israel, the God who gave his law to Israel, the God who promised to send his son through Israel. Jesus is saying this is What's important about worship, it's the, he's the, you're worshiping who? The God who revealed himself to Israel exclusively. The second bit in verse 23, listen, he's the God who seeks people intentionally. Did you pick that up? We miss this sometimes. Did you pick it up in verse 23? What does he say? The Father is seeking such to worship him. Seeking. Let's say the Father is waiting for such to worship him. The Father is seeking such to worship him. Do not picture God and do not preach a God who's sitting there going, well, I'm just waiting for you to kind of get it right. You come to me, everything will be sorted. Did this woman go to an evangelistic event to hear about the God of Israel? Did this woman meet someone on the street who was doing street ministry? No, this woman was pursued by Jesus. He sought her out. Why? Because that's the kind of God we serve. A God who pursues sinners to make them worshipers. That's the God we preach. 
Can you see why people would be confused if we preach that, but then give the, the idea that we actually just don't want them to be around us? We avoid people. No, worship is about worshiping the God who seeks people intentionally. But also, listen, verse 24 speaks about the God who defines truth and spirituality specifically. There's a few people at Servants now, I'm not going to say they are because I haven't asked them permission, but they've come to faith coming out of the New Age movement. And they will tell you, there's, they would tell you, there's a lot of sort of spiritual language in the New Age movement, some of which is probably sounds a little bit biblical. They tell you, here's what it means to be spiritual. There's people who come from other religions. Their religious background isn't Christian. It's something other. And they'll talk about spirituality. But Jesus is saying, here's how worship works. It's about who you worship. And we worship the God, listen, the God who is very specific about defining what is truth and what does it mean to be spiritual. Very specific. See, this woman is more concerned about a religious debate that says, where are we supposed to worship? Which temple? Which church is the best? Jesus is saying, none of that matters. What matters is who you are worshiping. Now, what's this got to do with outreach? Outreach is about worship. It's about worship. It's about us worshiping God, saying, God, you're worthy, therefore we want to reach out in your name because you're seeking people. So we want to cooperate with you and those people that you're seeking after. But it's also about leading people who are false worshipers to help them become true worshipers. Listen, even when it comes to believers, okay, we, we have to sometimes be prepared to this work. Jeremiah the prophet, uh, God speaks to Jeremiah the prophet, chastising his own people. He says this, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's a living water metaphor again. This is what we can do. We can think we're worshiping God. We can do outreach thinking we're worshiping God in a way that is not worshiping the God that we're meant to worship. It misrepresents him. God is calling us to something better. God wants to do something better. He wants to show himself to us and through us. In fact, this woman's humbled by what Jesus says. You get a sense that she's not really sure, clued up about what's going on. She's convicted. She seems to be humbled. And she says this in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. That is, he is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. You know, that's, that's not a bad foundation. God's going to send his chosen king, and his chosen king is going to make everything clear to us. She's humble enough to know she doesn't know everything. How about you? But I love what happens here because in verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. That emphasis that I just made is actually in the original language. I and he are the emphatic words for I and he. Jesus said it just like that. I 
who speaks to you am he. I can imagine him saying this with a massive smile on his face. Looking at this woman who he's just called out, who he's just, bless her, slaughtered her in a religious debate. He won, hands down. She's like, whoa, man, I'm not going to argue with this guy. And he says, guess what? I am God's chosen king, the one you've been waiting for. I am the fountain of living water. See, here's the thing. Jesus preached Jesus as the only means of true worship. Guys, if we in our outreach are preaching anything else than Jesus, we're doing it wrong. Servant's church is not going to save anybody. You are not going to save anybody. Don't preach us. Don't preach you. Preach him. Preach Jesus. See, listen, this is so about worship. John Piper wrote a great book on mission, and here's what he wrote about mission and worship. He said, mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, mission will be no more. It's only a temporary necessity. Man, if you don't get anything else, get this. All the outreaches we are doing, is we're doing because we want to worship the one who was born in the stable, who lived the perfect life, who died a substitutionary death, who rose from the dead, is alive, ascended, and seated at the right hand of God. We want to worship him. We want other people to worship him. Because we long for the day when we all stand around his throne and say, Lord, we're casting our crowns at your feet. You're amazing. You're glorious. Look at what you've done. You saved millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people who want nothing to do with you until you sought after them. Isn't that glorious? Appetite, listen. For worship, our appetite for outreach starts with an appetite with worship. True worship is the goal of outreach. Now, quickly, i got to finish. Going a bit long, sorry. Verse 27, this last bit's going to go a bit fast anyway. <laughs> Lastly, God's work is the motivation for outreach. In verse 27, it says, Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her, her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. We'll come back to that at verse 34. So meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to another, has someone else brought him something to eat? This is important. Jesus in this section is going to talk about God's work and his hunger to do God's work, okay? And you've got to recognize that these 12 disciples whom he handpicked to take the gospel out to the whole world, these who would be the foundation of his church were clueless about God working. They didn't, listen, 
they, they didn't recognize God's work. And here's the truth. Disciples often don't recognize God's work. They don't. This woman was so impacted, she was, she was compelled to, to pursue those who she had avoided to tell them about what Jesus has done. But these guys were clueless. And John Piper again once said um, that God's always doing 10,000 things in our lives and we see about three of them. They didn't get what God was doing. Listen, as we talk about outreach, I know part of you guys are thinking, yeah, but I don't see God doing anything. I have no idea who I'd even invite to the service. I have no relationship with anybody that I would actually talk to you about the gospel. I don't see how God's doing anything. Well, just because you don't see it don't mean it ain't happening. We often don't see what God is doing. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him. You see, here's the deal. Outreach is not a matter of effort. It's a matter of appetite. Outreach is about what you're most hungry for. Outreach is about us seeing God in his worthiness and wanting to say, Lord, how can I make that worthiness known? How can I share you? I see, God, you're showing me your glory as I walk with you, as I, as I know you, as I, as I meditate on your word and think about the glory of the gospel. You're showing me how glorious you are. How do I share this glory, Lord? I'm hungry for this. Because this is what happened with this woman. She didn't know hardly anything. The disciples have been walking with, with Jesus for a while at this point, at least a year. But she knew him for a matter of maybe an hour, hours at the most. And she's so blown away that this man looked right into her heart, exposed all of our sin, and still smiled with her. And she thought, this could be God's chosen king. And she, I got to go tell the people that hate me about this man. You know, the disciples did a similar thing. You guys remember this in, in Acts chapter 4? We just read this not too long ago. When they were arrested for sharing Jesus, the, the religious leaders say, you got to stop doing that. And they said, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. When you see the glory of God, when you, the more, I should say, the more you see and recognize the glory of God in Jesus, the more you look at Jesus and go, gosh, there's no one greater than him. There's no one better to know. There's no one better than to share. Guess what you're going to do? Share him. Can you, can you see why it's important for us to enjoy the Lord? Because God can't give us anything better than himself. And listen, the more we realize that, the more we automatically will look to do outreach. You don't have to be guilted into it. In verse 35, we read this. It says, Jesus says, do, you not, do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for the harvest. Now, he's saying this 
for a couple of reasons. One, he wants them to literally look because what's happening? Remember, the, Samar- the are, Samaritans are all coming out. The Samaritans are coming from the village out to the well. Look, I can imagine Jesus talking to these guys, and they're just like, what's going on? He's talking to a woman. Should we say something? No, we're not going to say anything. It's Jesus. We can't tell Jesus. What are we going to do? And he's, he says, look, here's what you need to understand. My, my appetite is to reach the lost. That's why I was having this conversation with the woman. You need to know the fields are right for the harvest. There, there's much work to be done. People are ready for the gospel. Look, see these people coming from the village? They're not coming to kill you. They're coming to see me. Look. I don't know if the, how true the statistic would be now, but there was a survey done, I think, in, in the early 2010s about church attendance in the UK, and they surveyed non-churchgoers and asked them, if you were invited to church by a... Do you know, first they said, do you know, have a Christian friend? Do you know somebody who's a Christian? Uh, of those who said, yes, we know a Christian, would you go to church if your Christian friend invited them? 80% said, yes, I'd go. But what do we think? No, they're going to hate us. They're going to mock me. I'll be stoned to death. You know probably the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to go, no thanks. That's probably the worst that's going to happen. The reality is this. Jesus is saying to these guys, do you recognize? Do you recognize I'm doing something great? In fact, keep going. In verse, in verse 36, Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the, that sower and reaper may rejoice together for they for here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps i sent you to reap for that that for which you did not labor others have labored and you have entered into their labors there's loads here that we're not going to be able to unpack today loads here that talk about a fulfillment of old testament prophecies loads here about about God bringing his kingdom to bear, things that are like prophesied in the book of Amos that we don't have time today. But here's one of the main things that Jesus is trying to say. Listen, when it comes to his harvest, when it comes to his work, it always involves multiple laborers. It's not up to you. It's up to God, and God wants to use us. Some of you guys have been with us long enough. You remember when... Uh, a young woman named Kana, a Japanese exchange student, received the Lord. Some of you guys might remember Kana. And I remember when she shared her testimony. Oh, it was, it was beautiful. She, she, she said, I'll write it out because I'm going to have to read it and then I'll, I'll show it to you. I said, it's great. She was sharing testimony before she got baptized. Completely unchurched background. From Japan where there's, there's almost no gospel presence. It's very, very minimal. And as she writes her testimony, I have to confess, I'll confess my sins, and I hope you guys don't, well, you know I'm a sinner, so I'm going to confess my sins. Here's it is. When I, was, when I got the email, I, when I got the email with the, the story, I was expecting to say, I've been so moved by Pastor John's sermons. It's done so much to change my life. I got a shout out, but it was like I was number 10 on the list. She talked about how Brent would challenge her when she was pushing back on the gospel. She talked about how another sister would pick her up and make sure she had a right to church. She talked about another person who would stay up late with her, ask, answering all her questions. She talked about another person who always made sure she just came and said hi. She talked about another person who, who would invite the, her over to a meal and be with her family. She listed person after person after person after person. Yeah. 
And then I got a little shout out. And the sermons are decent. <laughs> because here's the reality. God wants to use us. Not just you. Not just me. Us. Paul said this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You see, here's the deal, guys. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's a team sport, and Jesus is the only one who scores the goals. So what do we do? We keep passing it to him. Occasionally, there's a tackle that we're involved in. Sorry for the sports metaphors. Especially from somebody who doesn't really like football. But he's the one who captains. He's the one who scores. But he lets all of us play. In verse 39, we read this. This is amazing. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. I don't think she just said those words. I'm sure she said, here's what I mean. He knew I had five husbands. He knew that I'm living with the man who's not my husband. So she's probably confessing her sin, which they all knew about anyway. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with, with them, and he stayed there two more days. I love the fact that Jesus wants to invest long term in these people, these supposed unclean people. And it says in verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. See, here's the reality. God's work always prioritizes God's word. This woman's story was evidence of God's work, but God's story was the ultimate to reveal that he's the Savior. This is why when we, even when we do outreach, even when we do our big Christmas service on the 17th of December, even on that day, we're going to preach the word. Thomas is going to bring the word, not just here's a message and here's some fun stories. Here's what God's word says. Because that's how people come to believe. It's what God uses. Now, we've, we've talked about four basic principles that we learned from Jesus' example, right? About outreach. Relational intentionality is necessary for outreach. Um, God's gift is the message of outreach. True worship is the goal of outreach. And God's work is the motivation of outreach. God's doing the work. 